0: Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, uh, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa wa ala rasulillah, wa Alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. This has been a rather varied uh, journey through certain interesting uh, biographical stories uh, taken from the enormous length and breadth, historically and geographically, of the ummah. And that's part of the point, I suppose, to indicate that those who follow the prophetic excellence uh, uh, have their own coordinates in space and time and implement that excellence in ways that are proper to that particular location. This is kind of uh, obvious. What I want to do today is to look at somebody who is a leader in a very distinctive context, uh, which is that of the Ottoman bureaucracy. Now, a couple of months ago, we looked at the figure of Sheikh Abdulhani Nablusi, who was, as we saw for a while, the Mufti of Damascus, which was an official Ottoman uh, appointment, but who, by and large, uh, shunned the company of uh, officials. Uh, even more so in our previous lecture, the one we did in Ramadan on Nizamuddin Auliyah, the great saint of Muslim Delhi, who had two doors in his house, as you'll recall, uh, one that he'd normally use and one that he'd use to leave if any state official should pay him a visit. Uh, this is particularly the custom of the, uh, of the Sufis in Islamic history, who prefer to take the side of the population, and particularly the poor, against uh, the inevitable depredations of uh, imperial bureaucracies and civil services. Not so easy a luxury, however, for those who work in the judiciary. And Islam, as a legal tradition, uh, necessarily wishes to shape not just the content but also the conduct and the procedural matrix of the law. In some contexts, such as that of, say, 18th century West Africa, Hauserland, that was administered in a very uh, elemental, primordial, spontaneous, unbureaucratized way. The lack of complexity in what was still partly a nomadic society enabled that. But in the context of uh, North India, under the great moguls, with their state bureaucracy and their propensity for sharia elaborations and the publication of fatwa collections, and also in the context of other imperial realities, such as the Ottoman Empire, uh, the uh, procedures of the judiciary and the ways in which the sharia, apparently in its point of origin, emanating from so different a cultural and an administrative context, uh, became a matter of intense and inevitable concern by jurists. They couldn't, like many of the Sufis, just leave by uh, a back door. Uh, it was their responsibility to step up and to ensure, as far as they could, uh, the ethical and Sharia-compliant application of the structures of enormous creaking imperial bureaucracies. And in the Ottoman Empire, this was perhaps the largest of them all. If you venture into the uh, moldering corridors of the uh, Ottoman archives in Istanbul, you will see that so much was retained, maybe 110 million different files and documents. It's said to be the world's largest collection of pre-modern archives anywhere. Every last thing was kept there, not just in duplicate in the provinces. Sometimes they survived, sometimes they did, didn't. But many of them, particularly from the mid-15th century onwards, uh, in uh, the crabbed Persianate uh, civil service, uh, almost illegible uh, handwriting of uh, a big imperial bureaucracy at the sublime port, Babil Ali. It was a bureaucratic state and needed to be because of its size and complexity and the fact that as the early modern period dawned, uh, the Ottoman Empire was part of uh, a global world of uh, trade, the exchange of technologies and information, uh, and simplicity was not an option. The longevity of the Ottoman state, the reasons for it, uh, continue to furrow our brows. Why is it that the British Empire lasted maybe for 90 years in its kind of established form. The Ottoman Empire lasted maybe for 600 years, still just about a living memory for a few real old timers in a few Balkan and Anatolian uh, places into our age, but it emerged in the 13th century, which is not bad for a single family. No no ancient Egyptian dynasty, father to son lasted that long. the stability of this Sharia-centred state and its evident difference from the original prophetic model, the huge size of it, the variation of languages and cultures, the existence of things like gunpowder, uh, the necessity to maintain a huge navy. These were things that are not part of the original sira matrix for the generation of the Sharia and required the careful exercise of So what I want to look at today is to see how one of our uh, Muslim personalities, not necessarily one without flaws, uh, existed in the context of that enormous Constantinople civil service uh, and was able to affect change despite the enormous kind of... Inertia that tends to affect any large uh, institution. And to see if we can offer some remarks about how Islam was constitutionally figured uh, at the eve of of modernity. What was the interpretation and the structures of Islam that were inherited by the Muslims as uh, modernity starts to impact, firstly through the advent of new military technologies, then the printing press, and then the need to embark in permanent treaty and trading relationships with uh, with the Concert of of Europe. The Ottomans were the ones who had to deal with those questions before um, anyone else did, simply because of their geography. They were a European state. The most prestigious core provinces of the Ottoman Empire were taken to be the European provinces. Istanbul was a European city. The previous capital, Edirne, had been a European city. They saw themselves as Rumelians, and then there was Anatolia, the other side of the Bosphorus. And then after the early 16th century, the Arab provinces were added. But we need to remember that the center of gravity for caliphal Islam was taken to be the European provinces, Macedonia, Albania, Bosnia, Hungary. These were the, the heartlands of caliphal Islam. So <laughs> let's see if we can use this biography as an opportunity to offer some reflections uh, on uh, how that works and to see the extent to which classical, in this case Hanafi, essentially 11th, 12th century Khorasani, Samarkandian interpretations of the Hanafi tradition uh, successfully underpinned the stability and the might of that polity and the extent also to which it turned out not to be practical and in need of either utilitarian or systematic ijtihad-based transformations. So Let's start to think about that. How does the sharia, and this seems to be in many ways, the problem of modern Islamic politics, which emerges in so specific a space and time in 7th century Arabia, uh, and which takes itself to be revealed law, and therefore in principle not open to change, uh, become the successful legal, jurisprudential constitutional foundation and fabric for a gunpowder empire almost a thousand years later, let alone our modern world of big data and globalization. So, some contemporary lessons uh, here perhaps. But the person I want to talk about specifically who is really the, uh, the paradigmatic Ottoman alim, not just in terms of the, the legal and the uh, spiritual culture which he occupied, but the fact that he is in the golden age, he's the great scholar of the 16th century, this is the age of Suleiman the Magnificent, and the Istanbul as the, uh, the jewel of the world. Um, but also because uh, in many ways uh, he understands uh, the tension that exists between local imperial pragmatism and the idealizing discourse of the Sharia and is in the Turkish memory, at any rate, regarded as the one who tries to bring customary law, sultanic decree, together with the ideals of, of, the, of the, the Hanafi sharia. So we'll see the extent to which that is needed and the ways that he uh, uh, found in order to bring together that, uh, in many ways, uh, difficult convergence. So this is uh, Abu Saud Ibi as the Turks say. Uh, generally regarded as the greatest of the uh, Ottoman scholars, which had begun really with Dadi Qaisari at the time of the first Ottoman capital in, in Iznik in the 13th century and ends with you know, uh, Sheikh al Islam Mustafa Sabri in the uh, uh, early 20th century and the abolition of the position of Sheikh al Islam may be a bigger sort of constitutional earthquake for the Muslims even than the abolition of the 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 Caliphate, because the Caliphate in many ways, as we'll see, is a kind of symbolic figure um, with very few uh, executive and religious functions, whereas the Sheikh al-Islam was 100 years ago. Everybody would think about what was the Sheikh al-Islam's view on a particular topic. And if you go to Suleiman's Great Mosque, which, as we'll see, was really created in partnership with Abu Saud, uh, next to the mosque is an empty space, which is where the office of the Sheikh al-Islam was located. If you were a British Muslim in the 19th century, you wanted to go on Hajj, and you were called Toby or something, uh, the way to get there would be to apply to the Office of the Sheikh al-Islam. Um, not an Islamic papacy, but certainly unanimously accepted amongst Sunni Muslims as the highest source of fatwa. So again we'll be thinking about what is this legal system that has fatwas that are not kind of executive decisions, um, but a kind of consultative, authoritative statements. How, how does that fit? So uh, Ataturk had the building demolished, of course, and um, the last Sheikh of islam was chased into exile. And that kind of empty space is sort of symbolic of something that has caused many of the decentralizing fissiparous instabilities of the Muslim ummah ever since, I guess, 1926, the post was uh, was abolished, and uh, the Kemalists were dancing on the grave of the old Islamic constitutions. So Ebu Sa'od Efendi, Effendi, a little bit of biodata first of all. Um, and the biodata in the Ottoman context comes from, uh, in most cases, although you can learn things about the individuals by reading their works, and particularly their fatwas, mm-hmm. sort of anecdotes by scholars of the day. But basically, the sources we have for the ulama of the Ottoman Empire uh, begin <coughs> with uh, a scholar called Tashka Prizade, who writes a book called al and al numaniyya which is something like the purple petals or something. They really like really flowery titles for their books. And the writing is uh, quite extraordinarily baroque and florid as well, not an easy read. Tashka Prizade is one of the great scholars of the 16th century, puts together this work. Uh, um, he also writes a book, if you're familiar with Arabic literature, called Miftah um, al saada which is very generally used. It's in uh, Arabic, which is a list of all of the great sciences of Islam and those that are practiced, not just sort of tafsir and hadith, but also geometry. What are the main books on geometry? And finding the Qibla and all of these smaller sciences, hundreds of them, as it turns out, Prazaade an important scholar uh, of the Ottoman realm and he organizes his book not according to the dates of the scholars but inconveniently according to the reign of the Sultan in which each of the scholars happened to die so it takes a bit of navigating Tashke uh, doesn't include a notice on Isu offended because of He's just too early. Uh, So the the main information that we have for his life comes from uh, his successor, uh, who is called Nawizade Atai Efendi, who is also from Istanbul, uh, but spends much of his career in Yskup, which is present-day Skopje, which is one of the the great cities uh, for um, the ulama and the judgeship, now the capital of whatever they call it nowadays, northern Macedonia, but still has some major Ottoman structures there Um, it's certainly a city worth visiting and it still has a mufti and a mufti's office but of course part of the national structure of uh, Macedonia sadly diminished Uh, but Muslims are 40% of the population of Macedonia they survived the 20th century massacres and uh, it's still alive as a Muslim place, but uh, many of the great Oliver of the Ottoman Empire would, as part of the very complex, uh, almost ritualized process of career progression, spend some time in the great city of Uskup. So, Altai is in Uskup, and uh, partly during that time, he writes his own book, which is a continuation of uh, Tashkent uh book, um, which he calls Hada'iq ul the Meadows of Truths, which follows um, the form of Mejdi's translation of, of Tushka prezade's books. So it goes into Turkish. Uh, uh, and the same old uh, annoying format. You have to know the death dates of the sultan and when the scholar died before you can find the notice. It's not alphabetical. It's, but these books are so widely used by the scholars that um, it was uh, easy, uh, if you were familiar with the tradition, to navigate. So, <laughs> we have, of course, as you would expect, all of these books in the CMC library. Uh, uh, and here is his notice. We won't read all of it. Um, not all of it's kind of pulling out the organ stops of Baroque uh, 16th-century prose, but here we are. Al-Mullah al Azam Abu al-Aimadi. Al-Aimadi is what they call him, but we don't really know where this Ahmad comes from. Um, it's, they don't explain that. Who are Dino Dunya? So here he goes, trumpet blasts. Who are Lofts of Almana, who are Raya to Koswa, who are Dirwa to Ulya, Sultan in Mufasirina, Moktimai Jashin, Mota Akhirin, Muftil Anami, Mufti, Mufnil Bida, well, Atham, Sahibi Adial, Iftali, well, Isadi, Sahibil Irshadi, Ibn Sahibil Irshad, blah, blah. And then you get some complicated poetry. So it begins with this fanfare. He is religion and the world. He is the expression and the meaning of the expression. He is the utmost limit. He is the highest peak, the sultan of the commentators, the, the vanguard of the army of the later scholars, the mufti of all nations, the destroyer of innovations and sins, uh, the one who, uh, whose robe majestically trails the, te- the, the train of generosity and felicity You get the idea. This is very uh, elaborate Baroque prose. Uh, And he is Ibu Hanifi Sani. He is the second Abu Hanifa. This is what the Ottomans like to call him because he's rising above the parochialism, the pessimism about what the later scholars are able to accomplish in Islamic history. There's this kind of fatalism about decline. Uh, But at the same time, We, the Ottomans, have produced another Abu Hanifa. Ottomans, of course, are overwhelmingly the heirs to the Hanafi tradition. Hanafi tradition really has its heartlands, particularly in kind of the formulation of the earliest texts. Uh, Its heartlands in uh, Central Asia, uh, Khurasan, the Turkic speaking places, Turkic, Farsi speaking, Samarkand in particular. Um, That's why Burhanuddin Marhinani, (laughs) who becomes one of the great uh, authorities for Ottoman faqh, is buried very close to Imam Maturidi, who is really the founder of the Maturidi tradition of Hanafi, quasi-rationalising theology that uh, becomes the official doctrine, really, of the Ottoman state. So the intellectual flow into the Ottoman Empire is not from the south, from the Arab world, but from the east. And there's historical migratory reasons for that. How do the Turks come to be in Anatolia and even the Balkans when they originate far to the east, almost in Mongolia? <coughs> because the Mongols are pushing them west. Remember how Rumi leaves Balkh and ends up in Konya? They're refugees. Similarly, the Turks are migrating uh, to the west, particularly the scholars. Nomads have been leaving for a long time, and that's and working as kind of bodyguards and henchmen and heavies, and that's how they come to dominate the Abbasid (laughs) Caliphate, and even in the time of Ghazali, uh, these are the Seljuks. The Ottomans are the inheritors of this east-to-west migratory flow from places like Kashgar, Samarkand, Shesh, which is now Tashkent, Bukhara. Those are their roots. They look to the east, and so overwhelming, it's a Hanafi, Maturidi tradition, and in Abu Sa'ud's fatwas and legal compendias, we don't really see much reference to the other Madahib, even though by his time the Arab world, uh, the Shafi'i world of Syria, Palestine is part of the imperial reality. And Sultan Suleiman even adds North Africa. Algiers becomes an Ottoman city, which is Maliki, but it's a Hanafi state. <coughs> so he's Abu Hanifa II. Now, uh, we get the bio-data then from Altai Effendi. <coughs> the most uh, distinguished uh, contemporary presentation is Colin Imber, former of formerly of Manchester University, Ebu Su'od, the Islamic legal tradition, which is really first-rate and actually quite accessible explanation, not just of his life and times, but also of the intellectual challenges which he faced as somebody who centuries after the, the incipience of the uh, Sharia in Mecca and Medina in the seventh century, is seeing how it can still work in a credible, justifiable way in the context of this post-Byzantine imperial structure. So I'm going to be following Colin's book pretty closely um, during the course of this uh, journey. So uh, basic biodata, we don't quite know when he was born. Uh, somewhere around 1490. Uh, And his uh, early life is Anatolian, not uh, Rumelian. Rumelia is basically the Balkan provinces of the empire. Rumeli, obsolete term now. Rumelian uh, is the academic world. Uh, Family is from a rather minor place called Iskilip, which is kind of north-central Anatolia. Um, his father was uh, somebody called Mohidin Effendi, who was uh, a pupil of uh, a very distinguished scholar called Ali Kushchu, who is one of these Samarkand kind of refugees, migrants, uh, fortune seekers who come to the new uh, imperial courts of, of the West uh, from the East. Ali Kushtu is a famous astronomer uh, and helps to get astronomy going in the amongst the Ottomans, but also a significant interpreter of Arabic philosophy and theology. Um, during the reign of uh, Mehmed II, one of the things that the new ruler had wanted to do was to establish the kind of sacked city of Constantinople as an intellectual center. Uh, So he would invite in scholars and promote debates. (laughs) And one of the big debates was between uh, was about the effectiveness of Imam al-Ghazali's refutation of Ibn Sina, the famous Tahafat al Falasifa. It's one of the summit moments of Islamic you know, metaphysics. And the Sultan recognised this. You know, these are highly educated men, Sultan Mehmed, uh, master of different languages, wrote poetry, uh, cultivated, uh, cultivated man uh, who wanted these debates you know, to, to be worked out, what is the correct relationship between reason, revelation, al uh, Kalam, Falsefa, he was interested, so he commissions this big debate, and some of the, uh, the, the heavy guns include people like Khojazadeh who is the uh, who is the, the, the chief qadi of, of Bursa, which again is like wescoop, one of these key uh, imperial appointments. Uh, uh, and who wrote, writes a book called Tahafut al falasifa in which he revisits Ghazali's uh, challenge to Ibn Sina. Ali Kushjo is writing more from a kind of Abyssinian perspective. Uh, and then Kemal Pasha Zadeh, who is really the first great Ottoman Sheikh al-Islam, this line of Sheikh al-Islams that we had until 1920 something, um, writes a commentary uh, on Khujar Zadeh's work, and that becomes. You know, Islamic intellectual history in Istanbul gets off to a bang with a very interesting uh, dialogue of the different Tahafuts. Um, so uh, Ali Kushjo is like the great uncle of Ebu Saud Effendi and that uh, strong emphasis on the kind of philosophical rationalizing approach leaves its mark on him. Uh, uh, his first teacher is somebody called Mayed Zadeh uh, uh, who is based in Amasya. This is a kind of nice uh, central Anatolian town, which is politically important because it was the custom of the Ottoman sultans to get rid of their kind of annoying teenage sons um, and send them off as governors of certain cities, which would be cities with a kind of royal mosque and a palace, so it was comfortable, but also uh, useful training for the time when they would... uh, uh, or at least one of them, would end up uh, being successor to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Ottoman uh, sultanate. So Amasya is an important place to be, and much, as we'll see, of the Ottoman system depends on patronage. How do you get to be a qadi, or a grand vizier or a grand admiral or whatever? It was meritocratic to some extent, and they didn't have, unlike England at the time, anything like a hereditary aristocracy. This is important to understand because we think of the Ottoman Empire as being kind of feudal based on a peasantry and and tax farmers. But uh, the Ottoman system, because it was based on the Islamic law of inheritance, didn't really have the kind of inherited aristocracy that comes from having a law of primogeniture. When the lord of the manor dies, his estate, whether he likes it or not, is divided up equally more according to Sharia principles uh, between his sons. And the daughters get something and the widows get something. And if That's it's something that he cannot do anything about. So these big estates get broken up inevitably over time. So one of the features of Islamic civilization is that big sort of families of dukes, barons and so forth that you get in sort of English Western history generally, certainly in the Byzantine context, doesn't really exist in the Islamic context, where the sultan, when somebody dies, will just appoint somebody else who's maybe helped him to win a battle or written a nice book, will appoint him to be the new tax farmer for that particular uh, region. Uh, so a different kind of system. Uh, and, but nonetheless, uh, these uh, uh, grants were in the royal gift So it was meritocratic to some extent. Um, If you won a battle, um, you could expect to be rewarded. The Romans had something quite similar to this. Uh, But you couldn't expect to pass it on to your eldest son, particularly if if you're wealthy, you've already had several wives, slave girls. It was going to go to a lot of inheritors. Uh, It would be broken up. The sultan would reclaim it. And um, somebody else who just won a battle or won the royal favor would, um, be in your house uh, the year after you die so uh, a different kind of constitutional arrangement that isn't really feudal uh, but at the same time a system of patronage how did you get these plum jobs which are well-paid jobs in the olomar hierarchy what they call the emilia, um, or in the sort of as it were more <coughs> secular branches of the civil service tax collectors and, and the like. Um, it was basically uh, done through having friends in high places uh, and through somehow getting into the charmed circle of the, the royal family. So being an Amasia was the first significant step for him, uh, because at the time, this is now the 1470s, the royal prince who is governing Amasia is uh, Prince Bayezid, who actually ends up becoming <laughs> Bayezid II, uh, the sultan, 1481 to uh, 1512. Muayyad <coughs> Zadeh, a major <coughs> scholar of Amasya, is hanging out with the sultan-to-be and introduces the, at this time, very young Ibisud to the prince. Uh, and... Under Bayezid, when Bayezid becomes sultan, uh, this friendship bears fruit. So uh, Bayezid Zadeh rises to the hierarchy. And the hierarchy at the time meant that you were appointed first as a mudarris to a fairly small college, and then to a larger college. Uh, And then you have become the Qadi, because a Qadi had to serve some time as an academic first if he was appointed to a major town, the Qadi of Mecca, the Qadi of Damascus, the Qadi of Sarajevo would be appointed from the ranks of people who'd really um, been teaching and and researching. And uh, then after being a Qadi for a while, you'd move up to more and more prestigious cities. So Bursa, Edirne, and then Istanbul were the the plum sort of judge ships in the Ottoman Empire. And beyond that, there were three further positions. And these positions were called the two military judges, the Qadi al-Askar, Kazaskar uh, of Anatolia, And above that the military judge of Rumelia and then above that in a complicated way but not necessarily more powerful but more prestigious and better paid was the position of Sheikh al-Islam which was basically giving fatwas so uh, these military judges emerged in the context of the early rapid expansion of the Ottoman Empire in which normally a Qadi is the Qadi for a particular place and hopefully he knows the place and the usages of the place. And Islamic law is really quite responsive to local customs. But if you've got the army, and the Ottoman Empire had a big standing army, really the first proper standing army the world had seen since the decline of ancient Rome, not really a feudal levy, but they had a permanent army in the Janissaries. They could call upon landowners, of course, as part of the conditions of the sultanic grant of the land to perform military service, and were betide them if they didn't turn up outside the sultan's standard on the day uh, uh, allocated for the beginning of some new march into Hungary or something. Um, But there was a standing army as well. And these huge armies, 100,000 men or more, with all of their camp followers, like a moving city, couldn't be subject to local judges, but had to have their own judge. And because the sultan was with the army, in most cases, uh, this was like the whole state on the move. And because of the difficulties of logistics, it would take about three months to march from Istanbul to the frontiers in Europe to the gates of Austria or Hungary. And it was like the capital itself moving. So to be the judge of that army was a hugely prestigious and important post that usually carried with it the benefits of associating with the sultan riding beside him Helping him to write his um, perhaps not very first-rate poetry as he kind of rode through these Serbian um, roads, and it was this was important. So the military judge of Anatolia, above that the military judge of Rumelia, and then you got to be the sheikh al Islam. So Zade, having hung out with Prince Bayezid in Amasya, is uh, uh, rising very uh, rapidly now. Uh, Ibu Saud's father, this Muhyiddin Efendi, uh, doesn't just have an uncle who is a kind of Abyssinian philosopher, but also is very involved in the life of the tariqas, the tarikats, uh, and is primarily known for this. Uh, so Bayezid, who seems to have had a, a great respect for him, brings him to Istanbul and gives him land and builds a teke, a Zawiya, a Sufi lodge for him, which becomes one of the places where members of the royal family, the imperial elite, uh, heads of scribal offices in the palace will go for blessings and uh, ask advice from the the sheikh, from Abu Saud's father. So he seems to unite in himself these two worlds of the external and the internal, which is normal for ulama. It's the Ghazalian way. We saw with Abdul Ghani how he teach fiqh in the morning to sawuf in the afternoon. Bringing together these two seas is part of what the major scholars do and always is important for ijtihad. Uh, and this is regularly referred to by the authors of usul al-fiqh, because the jurist, usually has to spend time finding uh, compromises in the messy world of real human situations. And there can be quite a few possible alternative uh, judgments on any given issue, particularly if you're a mufti. There could be maybe half a dozen different possible fatwas that you can give in the context of a given legal situation. What is it that inclines the soul of the jurist to think that one view seems to be intuitively or humanly the better one rather than the other? To some extent, it's subjective. It's the givenness of the mufti in life, whether he's had an argument with his family, whatever. Um, there are human issues at stake, and the ulama are very aware of this and want to make sure that the jurist, as he, always oh, a he, is making these choices uh, is not in uh, a place of emotion and ego. So this is the idea that a jurisprudence depends on spirituality. You have to overcome the ego and not get too involved in, you know, I don't like the look of this litigant and he, I saw him smoking and all of those things that can sometimes sway Juries, but uh, has to be absolutely as neutral as possible. And that's a spiritual, not a legal exercise. Um, so very often we find that the really great legal thinkers in Islam have been those who have been quite actively involved in Tezkia spirituality of various kinds and the respect that later generations show for their judgment uh, is partly a respect for their own inner cultivation that has enabled them to be as objective and as also as merciful as possible. So there is Ebu Sa'ud's father, isconced in his nice new teker in Istanbul. Uh, and uh, this is also very characteristic of the Ottoman state, that the sultans uh, like to have company. Mm. The loneliness of power is a burden. <laughs> and they associate not just with jurists, uh, but very often with Sufis as well. And this uh, is a consistent feature of the Ottoman state, right up to Amen. Sheikh Abul Aynain in 19th century Istanbul, who was maybe the closest of the ulama to Sultan Abdul Hamid, um, Shad Ali Sheikh from Damascus. Having a spiritual mentor, a palace chaplain, if you like, um, was just part of the way in which things worked and this goes right back to the foundation of the dynasty and also the fact that these miracle workers charismatic leaders enjoy enormous support amongst the masses the guy selling kebabs on the street corner in sultan ahmed might really love the mufti but he's not really going to get directly involved in the reasons why the mufti is such a great mufti but a miracle worker, a saint, a Sufi, somebody who's living a life of poverty and helping the poor, curing people, is more interesting to the masses. Uh, and therefore, one important way for the ruler in his very kind of imperial, and detached palace world of remaining in touch with the masses is through these sort of purveyors of popular charisma. Uh, so Sultan Orhan, in many ways, the founder of the dynasty, spent a lot of time with these people, the famous Geikli Baba, the kind of almost kind of animistic age of ancient Turkish uh, Tasawuf. He's the man with the deers, because famously he used to hang out with deer in the forest. He was a forest uh, dweller, um, and um, promised the sultan that he's never going to leave his forest and come to the palace. And the only time when he obeys the sultanic decree is when he actually takes an enormous tree from his forest, carries it on his back, and plants it in the courtyard of the Sultan's Palace and say, now I think it's alright for me to spend some time here, but you should really come to the woods if you want to be my disciple. Uh, there's a big thing between trees, spirituality and sultanic authority that is uh, persistent in, in Ottoman history that goes back to the very early Ottoman period when the kind of nomads and. They haven't really got a city uh, yet. So um, that becomes characteristic. Uh, The Geikli Baba refuses the sultan's request to live in his (laughs) nice palace, says he prefers his forest. But if the sultan chooses, he can build him a place for his disciples to live out in the forest, the teke. And so state patronage of dervish lodges and monasteries, again, is one of the ways in which the, the elite maintain sort of a patronage of and connection with uh, popular piety. And this certainly continued in the time of Bayezid with the relationship with Ebussaud's father. Bayezid is one of the the best loved sultans. I mean, many of them, they weren't the kind of guys who you'd want to marry your daughter particularly. They were kind of rough, (coughs) isolated, exercised an absolute power in a difficult age and geography. Uh, Bayezid was (coughs) known for justice or a concern for uh, the less advantaged sectors of his population and took seriously the Ottoman claim to be alem pena, refuge of the world. So it's Bayezid who writes the famous letter to the Jews of Spain Okay, 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella, disaster is coming, not just to the moors of Spain, but also to the Jews, who writes to them, inviting them to come to his uh, well-protected domains. And many of them come. Of course, this helps to repopulate Istanbul, and uh, they're great and sober traders, um, uh, they're an economic asset, but to this day, the Jews of Istanbul still speak a kind of antiquated Spanish that, that's their heritage. They go from one end of the Mediterranean to another seeking um, Muslim protection. So he's the one who did that. He even sent the Ottoman Navy, that was quite a journey at the time, uh, to Spain in order to get to the places where Muslims and Jews are being expelled. Uh, and he sends the famous uh, Ottoman Admiral Kemal Reis. Uh, in his flagship, the Gurkher, which is said to have been the biggest ship in the world at the time, outside China, which carried 700 men, uh, in order to go to these coastal areas of Spain where, almost on the beaches, the uh, Jews and the Muslims are uh, congregating, those who refuse to accept baptism and take them off to the the well-protected domains navy is important for the ottoman empire because if you think about the geography it's almost like the roman empire again where the center of things is is a sea the middle sea Uh, and uh, the remainders of the crusaders the knights of saint john who have installed themselves in the island of rhodes are a real headache because they're holy warriors crusaders and one of the big things they do is to intercept the ships that are taking people on the Hajj. And one of the main achievements of Suleiman's reign is that he reduces the island of of Rhodes and chucks out the Knights of St. John. But in a kind of chivalric moment, he's so impressed by their courage in defending their fortress that he doesn't just imprison them, sell them into slavery, but allows them to leave. Some of his advisors say, these people are devils. Don't let them leave. But he allows them to leave and they go to Malta and they're still there, the, the Knights of St. John, the mm-hmm. sovereign order, and they caused trouble for the Ottomans later on, and they were raiding for slaves in North Africa. Anyway, <coughs> so the navy is also an important part of the uh, Ottoman, Ottoman world. So Bayezid, eldest son of Mehmed the Conqueror, the Adli, is somebody who is uh, patronizing these families but it's a difficult time because Bayezid has a brother Jem Sultan who also wants to be Sultan and uh, flees and takes refuge with the Pope of all people he goes to Rome and the Pope kind of imprisons him and you can see the Castel Sant'Angelo which is the Pope's castle which is next to the Thai boats Still, uh, still there, and that's where Cem Sultan lives for years and years with his wives and his pages and his own scholar, and it's kind of a little Ottoman world in the centre of Rome, and the Pope kind of holds him prisoner and forces the Ottomans to pay an enormous sum of money just for keeping him there, otherwise he'll let him go and there'll be a civil war in Anatolia. This is one of the big traumatic moments of the uh, Ottoman dynasty. Cem Sultan goes to France as well. There's a recent book about him a rather tragic figure who writes some rather good poetry. So these are uh, troubled times, um, but um, also a golden age in many ways. Uh, and then we find Episode is working his way up as a kind of very junior scholar in his teens, uh, very proficient um, he's become a hafiz at a very early age, and with his father, he has worked on the basic text of Hanafi Fiqh. Uh, but he uh, is—he uh, gets his first break when he becomes a muderis, which is the the, the chief uh, teacher, because a madrasa tended to be the kind of possession of uh, a given uh, a given teacher. There would be subordinate scholars but to be the muderis was to be the the lead scholar with a daily salary of a certain number of of silver coins akches so you'd have a 10 akche medrasa was a kind of basic one a 20 akche medrasa was a bit better and so forth so he's appointed to this little one now let me see if i can read some of this ottoman text just because it's uh, a dead language, let's see if we can revive it. Uh, so uh, what Atahi is saying is that he becomes, first of all, a shining light, uh, a candle lit in the madrasa of um, this uh, village near uh, Istanbul, uh, where the light of his knowledge amongst all present was uh, uh, a wonder, even though he was uh, just still in the shade of his own father and at the beginning of his his uh, road. Um, Sometimes you have to turn several pages before you come to the verb in these uh, old Ottoman texts. Well, the point is that he's made his first uh, break, his teaching in this little uh, village near uh, Istanbul, and he is... uh, persisting in this until uh, another uh, disturbing event in the life of the empire takes place in the year 1512 when Bayezid leaves uh, uh, the throne, abdicates. It's a little bit unclear what's happened. Uh, Maybe he's been uh, forced to resign by his son. And now the empire is in the very different hands of Sultan uh, Selim I. So Bayezid is Adli, the just. Uh, Salim is Yavuz, the grim. Mm-hmm. And he is the, the paradigmatic Ottoman obsessive conqueror. During his eight years, he increases the land mass of the empire by 70%. He's the one who conquers the Arab world. He's the one who, at the Battle of Chaldiran, defeats the, uh, the extreme Hulat Shia of Iran and secures eastern Anatolia. His spends his life in the saddle. It's even said uh, that he dies as a result of contracting a disease from a fungus that is produced in saddle leather. It kind of does him to death. And his, his great mufti is Kemal Pashazade and they have a very uh, close relationship. And Kemal Pashazade in many ways is the immediate uh, predecessor of Abu Sa'ud in terms of the kind of things that he writes about, the way in which he uses this post of sheik al-Islam uh, in order to guide uh, the Sultan, very irascible in many ways, towards a more uh, correct understanding of, of the Sharia. It's a difficult kind of uh, post. Uh, in 1514, uh, Mohidin Efendi, Abu Saud's father dies. Uh, and in 1516, Muayyad Zadeh, who is his first kind of scholarly colleague and the one who's helped him to get this patronage, dies. So he's now in his mid 20s. Uh, and it's really not clear if Bayezid is gone and his difficult son is now in charge, and his father's gone and his patron is gone, where is he going to go next? This is not a world where you can just send in your CV. Nobody knows you, and it looks good, you're invited for an interview, and up you go. Uh, It's basically done through patronage, who you know. And the Ottomans would say, that's a better system, (coughs) because you're being recommended by people who have a lot of experience and can tell that you will do the job. In reality, um, a lot of nepotism and uh, the the promotion of incompetence and even the history of some of the later Sheikh Islams is... Um, the appointment of people who, from an academic and even a moral point of view, were not necessarily the um, top drawer. So he's in this little um, uh, village, and Kemal Pasha Zadeh, who knows him, who's the Sheikh al-Islam, offers him uh, another madrasa, but it's at 25 silver coins a day, not 30 silver coins a day, uh, and he says no, and he perseveres in this little uh, medrese, until he finds his next step up, which is um, in a place called Inegöl, which is also in the kind of inner Ottoman provinces in Bithynia, another 30 akce a day job. And he moves there. <coughs> in 1520, Selim the Grim dies as a result of this weird uh, complaint, uh, and uh, Suleiman, uh, the first accede to the throne and the son of you know, Ottoman glory has truly risen. And the empire becomes unquestionably the most significant political force in uh, Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's a major political reality in all three of those uh, continents. Uh, uh, Ebussaud. Uh, is introduced to the new sultan, who is already known, (coughs) and they seem to have had a kind of friendship. It's difficult in these very kind of formal uh, bureaucratic uh, biographies to detect a strong human element. Uh, They are analytic and formulaic. but uh, friendship existed then as it does today. And Suleiman had a few close friends. Ibrahim Pasha, his Greek vizier, was certainly one of them. They played together as, as boys uh, in the palace at Edirne. And uh, Ebu Saud Effendi is somebody who uh, is also close to the young uh, Suleiman. And that friendship goes on to create one of the most important political sacral partnerships in Islamic history, maybe even more important than the connection between Imam al-Ghazali and uh, uh, Nizam al-Mulk, uh, as, as we will see. So he starts to get better jobs. He's now in the capital, which is where everybody wants to be. He teaches at the Dawud Pasha uh, Madrasa. He's now on 40 coins uh, a day. Um, he's also friends with Mustafa Pasha, who's the first significant uh, sort of... Uh, Uh, aid to the new Suleiman who gives him a madrasa and then he gets his key step when he moves to uh, the royal madrasa the sultania madrasa in Bursa Bursa is important, it used to be the Ottoman capital before Edirne many of the royal princes and princesses are buried there and it's a very important uh, indication that you're part of the uh, establishment Uh, we do detect uh, uh, in the words of his contemporary, contemporaries, some sense of uh, his impressiveness as a scholar, um, that he was known for his quietness and for the stillness of his demeanour. He would be hugely dignified and hieratic and would only speak when it was absolutely necessary, never interrupted anybody, and never spoke uh, without considering his words in advance. So then if we can go back to this uh, Atari Efende. Otus de Tari Hinde Abdulatif Efendi Yerini Madarisi Samandan Jani Bisharki Devare Mufti Miderisise de Meklemaruf Medres <laughs> Manande Salafi Gauhare Shevar Zati Ali Tayar Ile şeref buldu. Besh Sene Kamil, So uh, this is the key moment where he gets one of the most desirable professorships in the greatest madrasa in the empire. Uh, uh, Mehmed the Conqueror, as I said, wanted to make his new capital an intellectual center, and created what was a kind of university, that, the eight colleges, Sahni Saman, around his imperial mosque uh, in Fatih in Istanbul and if you go there you can still see that the buildings are intact um, even though during the Atatürk era they were converted into nightclubs and so forth um, and one, a friend of mine went to one of the nightclubs in one of these madrasas and said in the dome somebody had painted Allah yok muhammad yok there's no god there's no muhammad which is not quite how islam works according to a salafi perspective but uh, anyway in the nightclub when you were drunk you could look up and see this in a place that had been for centuries no. uh, a place for sacred learning um under the current uh, order in turkey some of those properties are being uh, restituted for um sacred purposes but the sahan was really in the sunni world the place to be greater colleges than anywhere in, in the arab world or in north india and very much as an imperial foundation uh, well endowed with lots of revenues coming in from al mainly in the balkans to sustain them and to make sure the libraries were good everything was cleaned uh, the s- students were well cared for and it was uh, kind of the the cambridge of of the ottoman empire so of these eight colleges he is appointed to be the director of um, the muftis college uh, and as the text says, he stays there for uh, five years, where his sun rises brighter. Now, as you'll recall, what we said about the mode of preferment in the Ottoman judiciary is that you would be in the academic world, dealing with students, mastering the texts, hopefully writing your own commentaries on the text. Um, and by an informal process of peer review, either people would use those commentaries, or they wouldn't. Uh, and then there would be the key step, not obligatory, but people aspired to, aspired to it, where you would leave the madrasa and become a judge. And if you were in a top madrasa, you would get a very significant uh, judgeship. Uh, and you became a judge before you became mufti. This was the way they organized things. So Suleiman, after he spent five years uh, in the uh, college at the Fertir, appoints him to be the Rumeli Kazaskar, in other words, the chief military judge of Rumelia, of the European provinces, which is the second highest religious post in the entire empire. Um, Let's see if we can look at the original here. (laughs) Kirk Rabbi Rabbil Evde Muhiddin Efendi yerin sadr-ı Rum ve nail-i Morum i gayet murun oldular 8 seneden ziyaret kevkebi bahtı ve ikbalları furuziyada olup işaiy-i şe'i adl etcetre for for these years uh, the rays of the uh, twinkling glory of his knowledge shone out over the uh, position of being the distinguished uh, chief judge of the uh, ever victorious army of rumelia etc he's in this post and by this time just about everybody in the empire would have heard of him and would have uh, respected him and he's in this post as he says for eight years which is a fairly long period. Very often Ottoman judicial appointments um, didn't last very long, partly because it was a matter of changing political alignments, uh, patronage, uh, people being sacked, sometimes for no good reason. It was never very stable. It was dependent entirely on uh, the the whim of the sultan and whoever was whispering in the sultan's ears. Um, But we find that during this time, and I guess this is where Uh, the leadership qualities of a bureaucrat become evident. Um, He brings about some important and enduring administrative reforms. Doesn't sound very exciting. A lot of committee work. Uh, And he finds that the records for the um, Romanian army are not impressive. And he also finds that the uh, systems by which uh, uh, the appointment to key moderis positions and qadis uh, is um, a little bit, uh, shall we say, inconsistent. The records aren't there. The procedures are not standardised. How long should be the default period of uh, a judge? What should be the staffing in a judgeship of a court of a particular um, size? Um, how many candidates could be allowed to be considered to apply for a particular judgeship? So, um, the, the Ottomans later impose, as a result of his reforms, a cap on the number of people who can apply for a particular position. They also lay it down that a judge should not be in post in a particular city for more than seven years. These seem to be uh, episodes, uh, innovations um, that you had to get somebody new, fresh blood after seven years. And then 1545, um, he reaches the summit of the entire system and he becomes Sheikh al-Islam as a result of um, his effectiveness in organizing the army of Europe. You have to remember this again is a time of campaigns, which means that he's with the army for a lot of the time. So Sultan Suleiman is riding off to Hungary Buddha becomes the great Islamic city of Budim with its Orta Hisar, with its madrasas. And if you go to Budapest, you can still get some sense of what it was like as a Muslim city. Gulbaba, the great Bektashi saint of um, Budapest, is still there. The Turbe is still maintained. It somehow survived the, uh, the violence of the Inquisition, which the Habsburgs brought in when in if it was 1686 or something, the city was lost, did the Darul al-Islam, and the population was was massacred. Um, but it was an important Ottoman city for a while in Majaristan, in Ottoman Hungary. Uh, but this involved, uh, obviously, a lot of legal issues. The army is marching through different kinds of provinces. Soldiers misbehave. What to do with camp followers? What to do with soldiers who are gambling with dice? What to do with people who have stolen from uh, legitimate subjects of the sultan, there's a lot of judicial issues that arise and it's important because the Ottomans like to maintain absolute discipline in their army. <coughs> Venetian and uh, Genoese travelers who observed the Ottoman armies it marched through Europe were amazed by the kind of machine-like precision with which camp would be struck every morning, did march until noon. The orderliness of it, the lack of drunkenness, the fact that the sultan would always punish anybody who'd been stealing from Christian or Muslim uh, villages. It was uh, rigorous, almost a monastic um, uh, procedure. But three months marching, and then the campaigning season, and then marching back again. And if you want to know why the Ottomans didn't continue, Europe in the grip of mad religious wars at the time the Reformation why they didn't capture Vienna and move on. And if you go to St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, they still have the Turkish cannonballs stuck in the roof of the, the cathedral. Um, they were very close. They were in Central Europe, not Eastern Europe any longer. Basically, it seems to be because the campaigning season was so short. You need to get your enormous army of 100,000 men with camels and huge artillery <coughs> all the way the gates of Vienna and then you'd have to get back again before winter set in so the campaigning season as they moved into Europe just got shorter and shorter until the conquests became more and more difficult uh, but if they'd captured Vienna and broken through into Germany which is completely you know, prostrate because of the, the wars of religion between the Lutherans and, and the Catholics European history would have been different but in any case that was not the divine decree but uh, this uh, role as the orderer of the judicial processes of the Army of Europe uh, impressed uh, Soleiman, so he makes him Sheikh al-Islam. Um, this is a, a post which, as I mentioned earlier, has kind of floated beyond the Muslim memory. We don't think of Sunni Islam as having a kind of uh, <coughs> grand mufti of everyone. <coughs> Everything has become shattered into Mufti of Egypt and the Mufti of Syria and the Mufti of wherever. Australia has a Mufti and it's kind of vague and unclear as to the authority of these people and their, their role. Um, that's a kind of pale, uh, often disappointing shadow of what the Ottomans were trying to do. So who is the Sheikh al-Islam and what, what was his job? It's not a judge's position, it's a mufti's position. In other words, he is dealing with all of the questions that people want to raise to the highest possible level in the judiciary. And there's a huge number of questions, a whole blizzard of people writing in fatwas. So, according to one of his contemporaries, Ibn Sa'ud, as mufti, for decades, after the sabah namaz, the morning prayer, would sit down, and the fatwa questions would come to him, and he would dispatch them very efficiently until he'd finished sometime around the the afternoon prayer every day. Sometimes there would be over a 1,000 fatwas every day. And each one a major religious legal responsibility. Uh, Despite their numerosity, they were each very important to the individual supplicants. Am I divorced from my wife? Can I take this patch of land that's nobody's? Nobody's using. I've been paid with bad coin. What, re, what remedy do I have? You can imagine, a lot of things. But not as judge, but as mufti. In other words, his fatwas don't have any executive authority. They're just fatwas. But because of his closeness to the sultan <coughs> and the fact that his fatwas are so respected by the qadis, these were important legal documents, and we still have some of them, even though kind of they were consigned to waste paper. Uh, shortly after being used. But some scholars did kind of keep them because of Ebussaud's status and kind of kept them in scrapbooks, and we still have some of those. Basically, an Ottoman feta was presented in a fairly standardized form. From the 15th century right up to the 20th century, a very long, thin piece of paper. (coughs) At the top, hua, he, the divine name, and then a blank space, which they called the space of respect, And then not the Tughra, the sultanic kind of cipher, but instead a formula asking for God's support. And then the question, and then the Mufti's answer. (coughs) His signature had to be there. (coughs) And then afterwards, (coughs) wara, something like that, the lowest of humanity, which is how the Mufti would describe himself. And they tend to be in in this format. Now, because there's so many of them, Ebusol again, with his administrative gifts, wants to reduce the amount of work that he has to do, working out people's handwriting or exactly what somebody is asking, or it's in bad Turkish or whatever. So he he builds up the civil service in the fatwa office uh, and appoints uh, a chief fatwa clerk, fetwa emini, <coughs> who is responsible for making sure that when these documents hit the mufti's in tray they're in a format that enables them to be turned around easily. So the question uh, is carefully formulated and it's always anonymous. It's not, I'm Mustafa and my wife is smoking, what right do I have to deal with her and her father is on her side? Not that kind of thing, but instead formulaic. So Zaid and Hind have this problem, what is the opinion of the Hanafi jurists on this? It's always anonymized and standardised so the Mufti can (coughs) turn it around quickly. Uh, Whether he actually wrote all of them or whether his uh, staff were kind of just asking him to sign something because the same question has arisen many times, we don't know, but it is clear that many of them he did deal with himself. (coughs) Um, And in some cases, for instance, there's a famous one where Uh, the fatwa question comes in the form of a Persian poem and Abu Saud takes time out to write his response in the form of another Persian poem. So you get that kind of uh, uh, phenomenon Uh, and he is clearly aware of his responsibilities in this. He doesn't have time in this little piece of paper to give you all of the Quranic verses and the Hadith. That's not really what a mufti does. It's not a detailed tract of ijtihad. It's just saying, jayiz or olor or olmaz. This is legitimate. This is not legitimate. This is impossible. uh, Simple answers like that. And maybe he'll give an indication of where this is found in one of the standard Hanafi fatwa texts. So the generation of fatwas is important, particularly in the Hanafi legal tradition. It's one of the great genres of Hanafi legal production. They have their commentaries like qodori, and then the commentaries on Qudori and Marhinani, and Marginani produces his own commentary on his own explanation of Qudori, and it kind of accumulates in crusts with different commentaries and glosses and superglosses over the years. And Abu Saud also writes in that genre. Uh, But another important genre of Hanafi uh, fiqh writing is the resala, which is a jurist writing about a particular question. So Abu Saud deals with the question of wiping over boots to prepare for prayer which if you're in the army marching through the snow in in croatia or something is an important issue uh, so particular issues uh, are dealt with sometimes in this risala genre uh, but the collection of fatwas is also really important and goes back in the hanafi tradition particularly to the fatwas of qadi khan which is still used which is i think a 12th century central asian collection of fatwas um, and then uh, for the Ottomans an important fatwa collection was called the Bazazia which is a mid 15th century collection of updated Hanafi fatwas uh, written by somebody called Ibn Bazaz, who was from Crimea Ottoman Empire is big Crimea is still independent at that time under the Giray dynasty but it's a Muslim country uh, and the fatawi Bazazia continued to be an important source of fatwas for the uh, for the Hanafi Ottomans but Abu Sa'ud, even though he doesn't himself put his fatwas together in a single book, they're so respected, not just because of his charisma, but because uh, just, they just seem to be intuitively right. Um, they are collected subsequently and even referred to today in modern Turkey. What was Abu Sa'ud's view of Sufi dancing or something? There it is. So these become really important. Uh, he's not... A Chief Justice or an Attorney General, in that sense, he is offering his view as to what is legally correct, and these documents then go to the Sultan or go to the army heads. Uh, should this Janissary be lashed for stealing a goat or something? Uh, it's not Mufti to put that into practice, but at least the army officer, military police, will know uh, what to do. They are the executive executive arm. So. Um, he is a great administrative reformer and is able to turn around all of these questions uh, every day. <coughs> um, normally, they are in Turkish, even though most of the ulama are writing in uh, Arabic. Um, and, and the fact that they're in fairly straightforward Turkish means that uh, they become well-known amongst the population, which is largely uh, Turkish. Speaking, Um, now, I mentioned that even though he's head of the religious hierarchy, he doesn't have any kind of authority. He's not like the Pope, who is a temporal prince, as well as being the head of the Catholic Church and has his own domains and is a sovereign ruler and a crown. Uh, The Sheikh al-Islam is never like that. Uh, The executive, (laughs) where is the executive in Islamic law? This is... uh, for the Hanafis, uh, in particular, an interesting question. So, on the one hand, we tend to think of the Ottoman state as sort of oriental despotism. There is the Sultan with his pashas, and his word is law, and everybody else is quaking in their boots. Um, in reality, in Hanafi law, it can't be like that. And this is perhaps the most interesting aspect of what uh, Ebu Saud is trying to do with the Sharia. Uh, The Turks are inheriting Persian and also ancient Turkish traditions of kingship. Um, They have a whole list of titles. um, Master of the two seas, blah, blah. Servant of the two holy cities. Kharkan, which is an ancient Turkish title. So they inherit the mantle of ancient Central Asian Turkish nomadic chiefs. But they're also Caesar, because they're in Constantinople, so they're heirs to the Roman Empire, which the Europeans never accept, but they think is pretty obvious. The Romans were Christians, so why can't Muslims be Caesars as well as Christians? Uh, and they inherit the Persian traditions of statecraft that they've inherited through the Seljuk tradition in Anatolia, with Seljuk roots administratively, Islamically, basically being in the Iranian plateau. So they're inheriting all of these uh, different things, but Even though many of those kingly and sultanic traditions are authoritarian, uh, particularly those rooted in Roman and Persian precedents, the Sharia actually insists on something strangely different. this is one of the problems that the Ottomans are always contending with. On the one hand, there is the master of the two seas in his amazing palace, (coughs) and the rulers of Europe tremble at his name. On the other hand, if you look in the Hanafi books of fiqh, what power does he have? And it turns out, not a lot. And this becomes one of the defining tensions of the Ottoman polity. Because for the Hanafi consensus, a ruler only does four things. Firstly, he establishes the legitimacy of the Friday and the Eid prayers. In Islam, that's a sultanic government uh, phenomenon if the Sultan hasn't authorised the Friday prayer in a particular place and people just pray Zuhur and he can retrospectively acknowledge the validity of a Friday prayer afterwards but it really depends on him where you say your Eid prayer you can't just go out to some field and do it it has to be a place designated by the Sultan and the Sultan's name is mentioned as an important part of the Khutbah that's the the position in in the traditional Sunni madhabs and ideally the ruler himself is leading the Friday prayer well that's not happened for a very long time Um, if you go to uh, Makkah now you'll see this enormous palace and the king when he's in Makkah supposedly is on the top balcony and following the Jama'ah for Friday prayers the old days even King Fahd used to attend the prayer in the haram but now they're in this kind of air-conditioned place far away Um, but properly speaking the ruler should be leading the Friday prayers and giving the khutbah with a sword that's the the tradition and even today you see in the mosques in the Ottoman tradition there's a lot of kind of political symbolism the names of the first four caliphs will almost invariably be there there'll be a flag on the uh, minbar which is the caliphal sultanic Ottoman, Crescent and Star, it's very much a government expression. And that's one of the four functions, one of the four things that the ruler can and must do. Uh, Function number two of a Muslim ruler is uh, to implement the hudud. In other words, the five, sometimes six, canonical uh, um, uh, (coughs) non-negotiable punishments. Uh, which are Qur'anic. So that's uh, punishment for zina, for adultery, for qadh, which is slanderous accusations of uh, of adultery. Uh, Consumption of wine, and by extension, other narcotics. Um, Theft, sariqah, and hiraba, which is um, sort of aggregated highway robbery. That it is for the sultan to uh, monitor, to police, and to punish. Now, in Abu Sa'ud's fatwas, we find that by this time the Hanafi tradition had acknowledged that the punishment for adultery was just a kind of rhetorical device that was never put into practice because you need four upright male eyewitnesses to everything, and in the real world that doesn't happen a whole lot, and therefore you find that the stoning punishment basically is not. Uh, actualized in the Ottoman realms, or generally in pre-modern Islamic history, not for modern liberalizing reasons, but because technically it's just very, it's a very odd kind of thing. The rules for evidence are not like those required in anything else in Sharia. Nowadays, of course, some town in northern Nigeria implements Sharia, and the next day they found some poor woman stoned to death, but not in in pre-modern Islamic times. This was regarded as a kind of statement about the enormity of violating marriage ties. It's a very, from a Western perspective, it's a very odd odd kind of law. It is there, and it's fierce, but it's, not, it's obviously not really designed to be done, and um, it seems anomalous. But the Ottomans recognized this. And also, interestingly, for sariqa theft, uh, the cutting of the hand, again, not for sentimental reasons. The Ottomans were, you know, could be brutal when they wanted. Um, that this was generally not applied because of the very difficult evidentiary rules that Hanafi fiqh requires. It has to be deliberately taken out of somebody else's hayiz, their own possession, which is defined in a very strange way and a very absolute way. According to certain conditions, you have to have a confession or you have to have witnesses. In practice, it's been very difficult to implement that. I remember when I was living in Saudi Arabia, Everybody was grumbling about the Saudi laws about theft because the, the the qadi's interpretation was that if you left something in your car and somebody broke into your car and stole it that wasn't theft because it was visible therefore it was in a public space and wasn't your taken from your own property and everybody was thinking this is completely crazy but uh, it's known uh, amongst those who apply traditional texts of that this is a a difficult and anomalous thing to put into practice. So what Abu Swords does is to uh, redefine what we would call theft as uh, a different Sharia category of of usurpation or unlawful appropriation. In other words, it's still theft, as we would understand it, but it doesn't carry the Had punishment It carries a ta'zir penalty which is discretionary according to the interpretation of the judge. So generally in the Ottoman Empire, if you stole somebody's donkey, you would be flogged or imprisoned. Um, So that's another interesting aspect of uh, the ruler's authority. These five penalties are the only area in which the ruler really has executive authority, but two of them in practice, turn out not to be uh, implemented. Uh, But there's two others. Uh, The ruler has the responsibility for the collection, uh, the supervision, and the disbursement of the zakat. Again, because of the difficulties of doing that, uh, Muslim rulers have generally not involved themselves in that. Zakat has been a private matter, or something at best locally administered, or determined by families or by tribes. But the Ottomans never had a central authority, despite the uh, enormousness of their bureaucracy, which tried to look after and regulate zakat. Other taxes, land taxes and things, uh, sometimes they did, but not for zakat. And the fourth was uh, another tax or a levy uh, uh, on booty acquired through conquest, which is important in the Ottoman uh, context, which is called the khums. In other words of everything which is taken on the field of battle, uh, a fifth has to go to the government, to the sultan. So that's another of the function of the rulers. But, so what we get, what Abu Sauld and Suleiman, as they talk together, Suleiman is shadow of God on earth, most powerful man in the world, his daughters, the richest woman in the world, uh, extraordinary, and they're trying to figure out what is the religious basis for what I'm doing. Find themselves up against the Hanafi tradition, which is actually the ruler is kind of a figurehead and his name is in the khutbah, and he can tell you where to do the aid prayer, and maybe he'll help you with your zakat, but in practice he never does that. It's a very odd model. Islamic law seems to envisage a radically decentralized vision of society. There has to be a ruler, this is not anarchism, And the ruler carries the banner of the prophet and leads the army into battle. But even the jihad is considered in the Hanafi fiqh not to be the ruler's uh, prerogative, but a collective uh, prerogative of the believers, to be decided upon amongst themselves. Now, that's very strange in the context of a modern or a pre-modern polity. The ruler can declare war, but it's kind of only because the masses have endorsed or will endorse what he's doing. And usually that happens through the, the mufti. The mufti tells the sultan that it's legitimate to declare war on the Russians or whatever. Um, and that's taken to be the shari'a's view, which is taken to be what the masses want. But it's not uh, a unilateral decision from the top at all. So a very odd image of um, imperial politics, totally unlike, say, the Habsburgs, totally unlike the ancient Romans unlike the Byzantines, unlike the modern nation state which likes to control everything. Irony of our modern lives is that it's talk about freedom and rights, but in reality so much of our life is regulated uh, by government. We have a national curriculum. Ottomans never had anything like that. Um, A ministry of health. Ottomans never had anything like that. So the Ottoman realms tend to present the spectacle of a radically decentered, sometimes even centrifugal space symbolically, emblematically, religiously united by the person of the sultan, but in reality, people's lives were very local. In most cases, the Qadi would be, in a small town, would be a local appointment. The uh, imam of the mosque, the headman of the village, the head of the tribe, the head of the religious community, because it wasn't just Muslims, of course, there were also formally constituted Armenian, orthodox, and Jewish communities, millets, in the Ottoman Empire with a very high degree of autonomy that would be impossible in the context of a modern liberal democracy. They hyperventilate about sharia tribunals even though they don't really clash with the British law, which is still you know, um, still sovereign. But we get very worried about that. In the Ottoman Empire, Sultan doesn't get involved in lawmaking and doesn't get involved in the making of the sharia either. This is something and it's worth bearing this in mind, which modern Muslims have generally forgotten. So in Pakistan, for instance, law comes from the government. There's a council for Islamic ideology that is supposed to make sure that it's all religiously correct. But in reality, the laws are decided upon by members of the parliament who are appointed by universal suffrage so, in reality, that means that the ideology of the state, which is supposed to be a religious ideology, and their fatwa choices and what they do with minorities and blasphemy and so forth, is really not decided by the decentralized Sharia, but is decided by the electorate. And that's not the Sharia model. But the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, that, that cannot work well. It cannot work well, and it does not work well. And many of the current instabilities in the Islamic world come from the fact that Muslims have unconsciously and in a Reactively westernized way tried to uh, uh, adopt the western image of the centralized nation state and to turn it into the Islamic state with an Islamic ideology. That's not the Ottoman model, it's not the Islamic model at all, which is a radically decentered um, uh, system that gives a lot of authority to local communities, neighborhoods, religious groups, guilds, tariqas. It's um, a kind of tapestry of of difference, and Catherine Burke in her book The Empire of Difference talks about the Ottoman Empire and the paradox of this apparently unified state with the sultan as the shadow of God on earth, but in reality most people never engage with the government ever. Even if they're paying taxes, they're paying it to the local bishop or someone who collects it on behalf of the pasha, and then it goes up to the imperial bureaucracy. And uh, we need to remember this in our time of Uh, Islamic states, Uh, that's not the Islamic model. In any case, back to Abu Saud, he's telling the sultan, actually, he's only allowed to do four things. Um, Otherwise, the culture just expects him to get on with his probably quite hedonistic lifestyle in the palace and not bother people uh, with their daily lives. Society is self-regulating. It looks like some versions of anarcho-syndicalism in many ways. If you read Kropotkin, you'll find an image of uh, the state which is a little bit similar. It's not completely anarchist. There's still a ruler. There has to be the possibility of collective self-defense, some form of minimal regulation. But it is (coughs) more anarchistic than (coughs) our stereotype of oriental despotism. So one of the key things that uh, the sultan does do in the Ottoman context that is not really valid in the Hanafi vision is to issue practical laws or to confirm laws that are there in provinces before they've been added to the empire. So one of the oddities of the Ottoman Empire is that you have two legal systems. There's the shariat, but there's also something called Kanun. The shari'at is there in the collections of fatwas and in Quduri and Marhinani and the Bazazia. But there's these qanun names, books of laws, which exist in order to regulate certain practical details that you won't find in the rather idealizing Hanafi tradition. What do you really do in cases of uh, theft, for instance? You have to have laws about property. Uh, What do you do in questions of land tenure, disputes over irrigation, uh, disputes over taxing beehives? There's a whole lot of stuff necessarily present in the empire, um, which is not that in the Hanafi tradition, and which has to be extrapolated either through a kind of utilitarian ijtihad, but generally is regulated by the practice of of the ruler in these qanuns. And the Ottomans are inheriting Different laws again, it's very regionally specific. So the rules that they have for taxing water mills in Bosnia are a bit different than those they have, say, in southern Anatolia or in Egypt. Over the years, as they issue more of these rescripts, they tend to become a little bit homogenized. But generally the empire is a patchwork of different kinds of localized laws, which mirrors in many ways the decentralized nature of Sharia administration. But this looks like a problem to a lot of the ulama. God's law alone is sovereign. What are all these qanuns? That's not even a proper Arabic word. Do we not need to reduce and do away with these extra judicial things? <coughs> even though in practice, much of the empire is regulated by them. Army regulations and who taxes the guilds and who controls river crossings and who uh, maintains security at ports. You, you, need, you need rules for those things. So uh, Ebu Saud is troubled by this. And one of the things, in fact, the thing he's most remembered for amongst later Ottoman scholars is that he uh, irons out the disparities between qanun and sharia. And this is one reason why Sultan Soliman the Magnificent has as his epithet Remember, Bayezid is the just and Salim is the grim. Suleiman is the lawgiver, Qanuni, a bit like Justinian, the lawgiver. Well, how does that happen if he's only got these four little functions? He's not allowed to issue laws, not allowed to do anything really. Let him go back to his dancing girls or whatever he spends his time on, but let him not get involved in important things in the state like law. So they're obviously talking about this. And in his fatwas, you find uh, that Abu Saud very often, while he recognizes the ongoing authority of qanun, irons out certain things that are not sharia compliant. And in other cases, uh, redefines things in ways that make sense to the sharia. So we've already seen how he deals with the fact that the Hanafi law of theft is not being applied by saying, well, we don't call it sariqa theft, but we call it illegal expropriation, and the judge can impose a non-hudud uh, penalty on that. And he does this pretty systematically. Now, the qanuns continue, but the scandal of having a kind of dualistic legal system is uh, significantly, uh, significantly uh, diminished. Um, one of the problems that they have uh, in an empire which is essentially agrarian the basis for the wealth of the empire and the supply of personnel for the armed forces is from the countryside is that the Ottoman system is not feudal in the sense of having an inserfed peasantry that just can't leave the land but uh, is that it's not clear who actually owns most of the land. Uh, at the lowest level, there is the kind of villager and the chiftlik, which is the basic farm. And chiftlik, it means like a yoke uh, between two oxen. In other words, the area of land owned by a peasant is originally defined as the area which you can plow in a single day. It makes up the basic unit of demarcation in the empire. And villages, will uh, be under the authority of a timariot or a local landowner, maybe somebody, some pasha or bey who's been awarded this. Or maybe it owns, is owned by a, a waqf, and the income goes to support one of the big sultanic foundations. Um, but it's not quite clear who is owning this. Is it the peasant who owns it? Or is it the landowner who actually has title to it? So can he sell it? Um, he can't really bequeath it, or does the sultan own it? And Hanafi law, Islamic law, doesn't really allow that. You have to have a clear single owner for um, immovable property. So Abu Sa'ud redefines this in a very fundamental way uh, by saying, actually, all of these lands are owned by the state, they're owned by the sultan. And the peasant is a sharecropper who is... Uh, giving a proportion of his harvest to the landowner in exchange for the right to till the land. And the landowner doesn't own it, but is, as it were, renting it in exchange for the payment of taxes to uh, central government. So this irons out the problem of this old Qanaun system that has most of the land in the empire, not all, but, but most of it, cultivated land at any rate, not clearly owned by anybody. And this is one of the major changes that he makes, and it actually clarifies a lot of things, because if you want to sell the land or divide it, it's clear who it belongs to, and you don't need to engage in protracted negotiations with a lot of people who think that they have an obscurely defined share in it. So uh, this is important. And he also finds that the empire has a lot of localized taxes, whose role in sharia is seen as being problematic. So... There's something in Ottoman law called the smoke tax, which is where nomads come down from the mountains and encamp in an area of settled land. uh, And so the state taxes them for for the use of that land. It's not really there in the Hanafi fiqh. There's a tax on gypsy dancers, for instance. There's taxes on a lot of things, boatmen at river crossings. And these are enshrined in local law in these karnal namis. And Abu Saul tries very hard to redefine these as uh, sharia uh, uh, institutions. And in order to do this, he has to find an authority for doing this. And one of the major transformations that happens in the Ottoman Empire at this time is that the authority, the sovereignty of the sultan is increased. (laughs) <laughs> the old Hanafi rule, which strips the sultan of just about every governmental authority that we would recognise, is uh, modified by invoking more formally a certain interpretation of classical theories of the caliphate. If you go to the great Suleymaniye mosque in Istanbul, in the masterwork of Ottoman civilization perhaps, it's where the Sheikh al-Islam's office used to be, and <coughs> madrasas and hospitals, it's a huge complex. Abu uh, Sa'ud is the one who writes the inscription over the main entrance to the Soleimani Mosque, which is an exordium of praises for the Sultan, <coughs> but defines him as the Khalifa. Now, Muslim rulers had often used that in a kind of informal way, even from the beginnings of the Ottoman period. Some of the Seljuks are saying we Khalifa. It's not a terribly precise term. But in Abu Saud's hands, it becomes not just a kind of nice thing to say about the Sultan, but a formal Sharia category that gives the ruler m- implicitly more rights than those that are conventionally allocated to him in the ideal Hanafi system. So the Khalifa, uh, and again, this is part of the inscription <coughs> in the Soleimania, is the interpreter and executor of the law of heaven. I can't remember the original, but that's what it means. Well, even that in caliphal terms is pushing it a little bit because the Khalifa doesn't have a a legislative role. But uh, Abu Sa'ud is working hard to try and ensure that all of these laws that are edicts issued on the authority of government uh, are religiously valid and he does this through this rather intensified view of who the Khalifa is. So the category that Mawardi and some early theorists of the Khilafah recognize, which is that of siasa, through uh, executive expediency and authority, the ruler, particularly the caliph, can do certain things, can execute certain rebels, <coughs> can punish certain people, can introduce certain structures can build madrasas for a particular purpose, uh, that these become uh, more sort of, uh, institutionalized in the Ottoman context as a natural concomitant of the ruler's charisma. So it's a very significant inscription. And you find similar things that he writes at the beginning of some of his books, where he's dedicating his book to Suleiman. And he gives this rather from a traditional Hanafi perspective inflated view of the authority of the ruler so this obviously is complex and runs through much of Ottoman law but to give you an example of contemporary import last week we were talking about when we will do marriages in the new Cambridge mosque and for whom who do we say yes to who will we say no to hmm. We had two marriages during Ramadan, which I didn't know people got married during Ramadan, but we we did it. That seems to be halal. But um, do we always require parental consent? Do we always require that they should bring along the certificate from the registry office? And the Turkish imam who we have, who is a a learned person, say, in Turkey, to do the nikah, you have to have the official certificate of marriage first, because that protects the couple in cases of dispute. In English law, there's no requirement uh, for legally registered marriage as a precondition for a religious ceremony. Uh, Some backbenchers are trying to change that. Um, We shall see how far that gets. But in traditional Islamic law, the state doesn't get involved with things like that. Why is it anything to do with the sultan or the state bureaucracy? It's a private contract between two individuals. Um, But in the context of Abu Saud's fatwas, as a mufti, he's seen so many cases where nobody can produce any kind of documentation, maybe a letter, maybe a statement of goods, of a dowry or something. It's a, 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 a notorious area for disputation, that he actually says that you need to have a document from the Qadi who is ultimately a state appointee in this system. Uh, otherwise, uh, you're uh, in a state of legal infraction. So if you've already got your nikah name, uh you need to have that uh, endorsed by the qadi. Now, the qadi has to endorse it if it's in the due, uh, appropriate sharia form. You can't say, no, you can't marry her. But it's legally notarized. And that's something relatively new, as far as we can tell, in Islamic history. So the current Turkish rule actually goes back to the time of Suleiman the Magnificent and the bringing together of sultanic and uh, sharia and and personal law. So that's one example of uh, the ways in which he does this. And um, a number of other uh, examples could be cited. (coughs) I should mention briefly. Before I close uh, some of his major writings, he's famous for his fatwas, but uh, he was quite a distinguished poet, <coughs> particularly in Arabic. But his major literary work was his Irshad al-Aqlis Salim, which is his tafsir. Uh, and he found it very frustrating trying to complete this, because he was endlessly interrupted with the state business. He found it really hard to get down to his <coughs> research, as we would say nowadays. <coughs> All those committees, the sultan clapping his hands and says, the mufti will accomplish, accompany me to Albania or something, um, and he has to comply. It takes him 30 years to write this tafsir. Uh, but, uh, and the sultan is really anxious to see it, uh, Soleiman is afraid that one of them is going to die before it's completed. Uh, so when he's got to Surah 36 or something, Ebel uh, Sword makes a copy of what he's got and sends it with his son-in-law to the palace just to kind of reassure the sultan. The sultan is delighted and gives him a pay rise. <coughs> finishes it, uh, the... Uh, Uh, the next year uh, which is um, the year of Suleiman's death uh, and it circulates amongst the ulama and although the prestige of its author no doubt drew it to many people's attention it came to be regarded as one of the three great tafsirs used amongst learning people in the Ottoman Empire along with Samakhshari and along with Baydawi these are the two texts they'd used in the madrasa primarily before that, partly because of their strong kind of Hanafi rationalizing tendencies. But uh, ebu Saud's tafsir uh, is right up there. Uh, if you go to bookshops in the Arab world now, and you look for books by Ottoman scholars, and partly they just don't know, and partly it's because the texts are in Turkish. But generally, the two books you'll find, or maybe the three books you'll find, will be Haji Khalifa's book. Um, on the different uh, disciplines. You will find Tashka Prizade's book, which I referred to, Miftah Al-Sa'adah. And you will find the tafsir of Abu Saud very very reputed. So he completes this. He writes a few short fiqh books. Um, He writes, as I said, quite a bit of poetry, uh, but is essentially uh, somebody who works on fatwas and works in a practical way in the judiciary. And does so, you know, he's still off in Macedonia doing cadastral surveys um, quite late in his life. But uh, in his, I guess, mid-80s, he dies, uh, 1574. And he's buried at Ayub, which is uh, the quarter of Istanbul, where the Ashraf and the ulama are traditionally interred. Um, And the the place is well-known. People can show you where the grave is. He actually endowed a madrasa there, which no longer exists. So all that remains is his quite humble grave. So that's the story that I wish to um, present today. And it raises questions not just of how you remain pious and sharia-oriented in a, in many ways, quite pragmatical imperial bureaucracy, but also reminds us of the, the... surprising decentralization which the Sharia envisages. If you've read Wa'il Halaq's new book, The Impossible State, he talks about the ruptures of the modern Muslim world being about the fact that Muslims are now trying to use the Western enlightenment structure of the nation state with its idea that the government monopolizes violence and uh, law giving uh, in order to promote the Sharia, which is structurally completely allergic to this idea of institutionalizing and governmentalization. And the result is just a totalitarian catastrophe and administrative failure everywhere. It's a worthwhile book worth looking at. And um, uh, her luck doesn't look much at Ottoman examples. But you might even see in Abu Saud's reforms, which are trying to make the law of the empire and this huge uh, state uh, consistent the beginnings of the modern tendency to make uh, fatwa and uh, qada and religious authority uh, something that the state regulates which is a process that's becoming very intense now with the kind of state scrutiny of madrasa curriculums and the banning of independent teaching of majalis in the mosques and the control of the state not just of the, the allowing of Friday prayers but writing every single khutbah which is increasingly common. They tried to do it in Egypt two years ago and the Azhar let out a howl of protest and Sisi backed down but this is the final, uh, final nail in that coffin in many ways. Uh, but the Sharia in its classical text is consensually absolutely clear. The, sh- the state has no right to interfere in these things and is perceived as, a, as at best, a small government. <coughs> now, how you actually instantiate Sharia in the context of the inescapable uh, structure of the modern nation state, um, international treaties and so forth, the United Nations, is an interesting question. Uh, it's not clear to, to me how somebody like Abu Saud would have resolved that but his career does remind us of uh, <coughs> the inherent difficulty of trying to governmentalize Sharia and charismatic authority in Islam which uh, is sceptical about central authority and tries to keep its uh, jurisdiction to a minimum. So that was rather a long one, my apologies but I think he's an interesting guy and an interesting story and as i said i've relied very heavily on colin imber's book so if you want to know more about this i would uh, commend it warmly salaam alaykum wabarakatuh. Al. Yes. Cambridge Muslim College training the next generation of muslim thinkers